Previously on Michael Easley in Context. Before St. Nick, before Christmas cards, before all the traditions of commercialism that have uh, made the end of the year the uh, most important part of retail sales. If we were to go back before these things came into our history, what did people look forward to? There was no Christmas tree, there was no Christmas season. If we were to go back to antiquity, to when the Jewish or the pious believer was looking forward to something, they were expecting Messiah. And now back to the broadcast. Let's continue to the third messianic expectation, delivering from slavery. The Messiah is gonna come to deliver them from slavery, both literal and metaphorical slavery. For 400 years, Israel will sojourn in slavery in Egypt. And the cry and the hue and cry will become so great that God will finally act, we might say. God's gonna intervene and do something to a boy named Moses. Chapter one of Exodus is the story of a little boy who is put in a pitched little vessel and set on the Nile River. Why? Because Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, had issued a decree to kill all children that are two years and younger. It's, it's ethnic cleansing. There are too many Hebrews. They're having too many children. They're going to soon outnumber the Egyptians, and they will be a force we can't reckon with. Let's stop it with ethnic cleansing. It still goes on. Rwanda. It still goes on. What, six to 800,000 bodies in shallow graves? Let's kill a people group. Precisely what Pharaoh tried to do. And in that story, God spares one Hebrew boy. And irony of ironies, Pharaoh's daughter just happens to be out bathing in the Nile. They just happen to see the basket. They just happen to pull it up. They just happen to be a little Hebrew. Oh, it's one of the Hebrews' children. And she takes pity on it and takes it in. And oh, it just happens that Miriam's right there, his sister, his big sister, watching her little brother go down the Nile. Just so I'll be happy. I know a wet nurse, basically. I'll take him back to mom. And eventually he'll be old enough to go live in the house of Pharaoh and in the dynasty. In the 40, 40, 40 year blocks of Moses' life, we have a picture of Israel again and again and again. What does Moses mean? Literally lifting up out of the water. When you think of Exodus, I remind you again and again, redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. We've gotta get God's people out of slavery, not only literal slavery, but slavery to sin and idolatry. And then we've gotta redeem, the consecrate them so they can worship God. That's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of you and me. We must be redeemed from our slavery to sin, those shackles broken, so that we are no longer seen as sinners condemned to death. And now we have to be consecrated, set apart, so we can worship God the way he intended, the way he designed. It happened on the way Moses is lifted out. Chapter one is an outline of the whole book. And Moses' story is a story of premature redemption. He kills an Egyptian who's abusing a Hebrew slave. The next day, two Hebrews are in a scuffle, and they were, you going to kill us too? And so he runs. Perhaps Moses' story was not as scripted as we like to think, but certainly God uses that experience to develop him into a man who will deliver his people out of slavery, and he does. I would argue over one and a half million people came across the Red Sea 
And they're given the law of God by Moses. So the intercession of the God-man, Jesus Christ, I believe, writes the words on a stone with Moses on the mount. And he gives those stones to Moses to take to the people the law of God. And we know the story again too well. The law was the provision for them, not to save them, but to show them their sin, to give them rails to live by in a theocratic world where God is their king and sovereign, not the way the world does things. And their religious system and their theology and their social work was all one thing. It wasn't a republic and democrat with Christians and non-Christians alike. It was a theocracy. God's the king. We're his people. God's the government. We follow God's law. It was one and the same. And of course, they fail at the law again and again and again. The law came to deliver them from slavery, and ironically, the law shows them how deep into slavery they are. Third prophecy is that Messiah will come to be a sacrifice to fulfill what the law could never provide. Fourth, the messianic expectation of worldly kingdoms. We go from Abram, we go from the table of nations, we go the, historically, we have a united kingdom. First of all, of course, they want Saul. They want a people. Samuel the prophet says, it's evil what you do. We want to be like other nations. What a horrible comment for a pious Jew to say. We want to be like other nations. You know what? We live in a world that wants to be like other nations. We're all craning our neck to see what other nations are doing to make them powerful and wealthy. And we want to do the same things to be powerful and wealthy. Nothing's changed. Give us a king. God would say, paraphrase, oh, that I would be their king. Oh, that they would see me as their king. Give them a king. And they choose Saul. Head and shoulders taller than everybody. He looks like a king, walked like a king, dressed like a king. Had the armor of a king. Miserable failure as a king right away. And God says, let me show you how to pick a king. Not the oldest son of Jesse. Not the next, not the next, not the next. Is there anybody else? Well, there's one little snotty-nosed teenager out taking care of sheep. Go get him. No record that he bathed before he went to see Samuel. He's been out there following sheep, God tells him later. What do you do when you follow sheep? What are you walking in when you're following sheep? I took you from following sheep, God says. And this little boy is anointed the next king of Israel. Because God chooses based on the heart, not on the, based on how he looks as a candidate. And of course, David fails many times, but David is a man after God's own heart. Even in his failure, God applauds him because when he sins, he repents. When he commits egregious sin, he owns it. He doesn't blame. And that's what God wants. There's a person who will own their sin and admit their sin and say, I'm wrong, and repent and turn and ask for forgiveness. And God graciously does again and again. Open your Bible to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. This messianic expectation is because now we have kingdoms. And kingdoms go to war with each other. That's what nations do. They build kingdoms. Kings secure people to build armies. They take from landowners. They take material and goods from their people. They build armies. They build protection. They are empowered and entrusted to protect that piece of property and that people group. And kingdoms are indeed what they will have. 
The United Kingdom, of course, will become divided between Israel and Judah, another story for another time. But in 2 Samuel 7, David, who is the most successful king up until the time of Solomon, wants to build God a house. And he says, nope, your hands are bloody, but your son will build me one. You can build your own house, which by the way, even a few weeks ago, they're finding more and more stuff out about David's house. I've been to David's house many times when you go to Israel. And uh, I can't wait to get back to see what else they continue to discover proof positive David really was there and really built the house. Unquestionable, undeniable, he was the king of Israel, and you can go see where he lived. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, the middle of the verse, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. My loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And from now on, David, his lineage, and Jesus are called the son of David. It's the title oft used in the Gospels, son of David, have mercy on me, son of David, because they knew the king would come through the lineage of David. Now, this passage should also be worn out and marked up in your Bible. There are layers of prophecy here. The application, obviously, is to Solomon, who will build the temple complex that David could not build. And David will spend the last few years of his life getting all the building materials, we might say, together so Solomon could implement the completion of the temple complex, which he does. But the layers are not just about Solomon. It's about the Father's Son, God the Father's Son, who will be the eternal king. When we read, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. Obviously, Jesus will not commit iniquity. He will become sin. And look what it says. With the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And they will beat him with Roman whips and they will crucify him and torment his body in fulfillment of this and hundreds of other prophecies that talk about the Messiah who will come. We're expecting someone to solve our problem, not just to make life better, but to design us back to what we were intended for, to worship him in spirit and truth. We've got to defeat Satan and the temptations that surround us, and then God will deliver us from that sin for those who trust in Messiah. Well, the dynasty is what's important not to miss in this passage. Twice in the last verse, your house, the kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And in the scripture, Jesus Christ's throne is eternal. It has always existed and it will always exist. We could go on through the Psalms, many of which David wrote and sung songs of this enthronement, whether it was 22, where he would talk about the Messiah and how the Messiah would be killed, whether it's 45, where he'll celebrate the marriage of this eternal throne with his people, whether it's Psalm 72, where we'll have a judge who judges righteously, who always does the right thing in the right way. Oh, do we need that today? If you watch the news the last 24 hours, 
what is happening to this country. Oh, that we had judges that judged righteously. Men and women who spoke truth instead of lies. People that did the right thing in the right way instead of all this garbage we listen to. This will go on until the end of time, men and women. It might get better for a season. It will always get worse because we live in a kingdom that is run by men who are full of sin and sinful to the core. And there's one king who reigns who is without sin. There's one king who will come who will fulfill the messianic expectation to deal with Satan, to deal with our sin condition, to deal with the kingdoms and nations in conflict that will fight and wage war until he returns. We will always have war. We will always have nations raging because they are megalomaniacs, they are power driven, they are incredibly monetarily driven because they are driven by a dark Lord. And we need a Messiah who will come and deal with sin and protect his people and provide a way and offer a way to any, to all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. In Luke chapter two, finally, we have a lovely picture of a man named Simeon. Again, we know these stories too well. In Luke two, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout. Boy, wouldn't that be nice to have after your name, righteous and devout? He was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Those three words for you Bible study buffs are a gold mine. We have a Christmas song that talks about the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he'd been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, literally the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, all that simply means, we get hung up on that, um, there, were, there were basically rooms, we might think of it, in the larger temple complex where these priests lived. And more than likely, he's an older priest, uh, perhaps he's a widower, a widower by this time in life, we don't know all the details about Simeon, but... I would simply say it this way. God wakes him up and says, hey, you need to get over to the temple. He came in the spirit of the temple where the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. And he took him into his arms. That is, he, Simeon, took Jesus into his arms and blessed God, said, now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. He believed the word of God. A light uh, excuse me, uh, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding a baby, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Even Simeon understood this messianic king was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. I'm not saying that we cast aside all our Christmas traditions and <clears throat> we just look at life in this perfect Christian way, I am asking, what would it take to recalibrate your and my expectation? We live in such a horizontal view of 
uh, our marriage, our family, raising children, making decisions as young men and women about college and careers and who we date and, and who we marry and our sexual orientation and money, sex, and power. We, we spend so much life on this horizontal life that is chock full of sin and distortion. And what would it take for your and my expectation to be just a little bit vertical? Does it mean you got to be 50, 60, 70, 80 and old and then you're ready to die before you start thinking of these things? Messiah is going to come again. And when he comes this next time, he will come in a very different fashion. Frank Capra took a short story that the author couldn't even get published and made it into the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart plays the role of George Bailey, the suicidal George Bailey, who runs out on a snowy bridge begging for another chance. Let's watch that clip. Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back, I don't care what happens to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George? Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... idea what Capra meant by I get to live again but if you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone you get to live again and your life and mine are what to proclaim Christ to mature in the faith and to give our life away your life and mine should be the greatest thank you back to God that we could ever give and by the power of his Holy Spirit through the work of his word in our lives, through the community of other believers walking along with us, we worship and serve him. And we of all people should get Christmas better than anybody. No matter how crazy the world is going to be, we have a hope Messiah returns. He's come once to rectify our sin condition. He will come again to roll up history. We live waiting for the long-expected Jesus to resolve all right, to deal with Satan, and deliver his people from the dominion of sin. C.S. Lewis wrote, the birth of Christ is the central event in the history of earth. The very thing the whole story has been about. The whole story of human history from the moment Adam and the woman sinned 
was that he would come to defeat Satan and deliver those who trust in him from the dominion of sin to live a life in an eternal kingdom that lasts forever and ever and ever. And there will be no war, no tear, no fear, no sickness, no loss, no disease, no disappointment. That's Christmas. Thanks for listening to Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. The basis of hope.